Welcome to Neartown Church. Uh, we're excited everybody is here. Uh, this past week, if you are anything like Russell and I, uh, you were very aware that the NBA has finally started. Um, I love basketball. I love my Pacers. I do root for the Rockets when the Pacers are not playing them. So I am, I, I, you know, go Rockets, but go Pacers if they're playing. So uh, on, on Tuesday, the season started. There were two matchups that night, one of which was highly publicized. You had the Cleveland Cavaliers and you had the Boston Celtics. And within six minutes of the game, a newly acquired Gordon Hayward went up for a layup. It was a, he was thrown an oop, and he went up for it and came down. His ankle went one way. His body went another. It was probably listed as the most gruesome injury in the NBA's history. Um, I was almost going to play the gif that was going around, not of the injury, because I, I still haven't watched it. I refuse to watch it, um, but of everybody's reaction when it happened. Literally the entire Cavaliers bench, they all went, oh, and like there were guys on the end of the bench who went from seated to standing and screaming and they just ran because it was so bad. So we had this pop up uh, on Twitter. Rules are rules. The NBA, this is a fake article. This is a joke. Uh, The NBA has fined Gordon Hayward $7 million for reminding everybody of the fragility of the human body. And the article then went on to say, again, it's a joke article. When fans watch the NBA, they want to see athletes performing at the top of their game, not to be reminded that the human skin is only three millimeters thick, a tawdry, pathetic sheet that stands between our soft, squishy organs in a dangerous, uncaring world. Uh, This would be the uh, NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, explained. Hopefully, this will be a lesson to Gordon and all players to think twice before forcing fans to reflect on how life is merely a high-wire act where each breath is a new opportunity for the maelstrom of existence to carelessly mangle the feeble human body into grotesque shapes. Wow. Tough, but fair. Uh, I, I chuckled at the article because... The reality is everything is going right. This is the start of the season. Everybody has been working hard for this. And actually, Gordon Hayward went down on Tuesday. Jeremy Lin went down on Wednesday, both in the start of their games, and they're now done for the seasons with brutal injuries. Their teams and their projecting where they were supposed to go and how they were supposed to dominate, it's all gone. Everything is up in the air. And so this thing, life has now been, well, it's been thrown into the wind. (laughs) There's these things that we thought we understood or could expect that we thought were within our control. And when we watch somebody who is as refined and as fit as an NBA player have a, a happenstance accident ruin his season, hopefully his season, not just his career, then it causes us to think about our lives how frail we are, the things that we actually don't have under our control. How do you react when you're reminded that you aren't really in control? How have you set your life, how how have you organized your life and how you run it uh, to maintain that control? How often do you actually even think about your lack of control? We don't like to think about it. We don't like to think about it, and we've organized our lives in such a way where we don't have to come down uh, to grips with that. 
This past week, I've actually had a few conversations with some of you all and some people who are a part of this church and about the circumstances that have gone sideways and how they're dealing with them. Now, as I talked with them, I was reminded that coming to grips with God's greatness can actually bring peace to my day-to-day. Now, when we leave today, I want us all to remember this phrase, God is great, so I don't have to be in control. God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Now, how do we get from this fragile reality where we are to this abiding peace in a statement like that? How do we get from A to B? So we're going to jump in it together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this is your church. This is your word. I ask that you are magnified, that people see you, and that it's really clear that we need you. Lord, walk us from where we are to where you want us to be by the end. Thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. So a month ago, uh, about September 24th, I started this wandering four-part series. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump in and preach one of these four parts in between where Russell's has series. And so this is actually the second part of this series, the four G's. God is good. God is great. God is gracious. God is glorious. We will cover each one of these uh, over these, again, wandering four weeks. We've already done God is good, and today we're going to talk about God is great. Now, these four G's, these four gospel truths, are things that we can trust in and see day-to-day changes when we embrace them. The reality is, It's real nice to say these things. God is good. God is great. God is glorious. God is gracious. Yeah. Yeah, they're hard. They are hard to do on the day to day. We can say them, but what does it look like to actually actualize them, to see them lived out? What would that look like? Where can we start to ask that question? I thought there's probably no better place to go than the book of Job. Now, I want everybody to jump with me. I'm going to preface where we are in Job. We haven't started Job. We're not going to go into Job, but I'm going to tell the story and then jump into the end. So at the start, we have Job. This is the book's namesake. He was a wealthy, prosperous God follower. Now at the start of the book of Job, Satan claims to God that Job only loves him because God has showered him with blessings and that he has such a cushy life and that if God removed that cushy life status and allowed Satan to mess with Job, then, well, Job wouldn't love him. He wouldn't be this awesome, righteous follower, would he? And God said, okay, I will allow it. And so what does Satan do? Well, he takes all of Job's livestock He breaks down all of Job's properties, he kills all of Job's children, and he afflicts Job himself with terrible sores that cover his entire body. As Job sits in ashes, mourning both his state and the loss of everybody he loves, he has these three friends that decide to come and rail him for days on end and tell Job, Job you must be the most vile sinner of all time to have this happen to you. So because you are the most vile sinner, you need to repent, 
you need to tell God you're sorry for all the horrible things you've done, and maybe this will go better. And then Job says, I am not a vile sinner. I am going to praise God. So at the beginning, Job praises God. He's resolute. He stands by it. God is good. God is great. And then the longer his friends keep antagonizing him and accusing him of being the worst person that God has ever made, he starts to get a little angry and a little furious. And he keeps pushing on this to where by the end, well, he's changed his tune a little bit. So now, during this time, the three friends have been railing on Job. There has been an, a, a bystander, an onlooker. He's a friend of Job's, but he's not listed as one of the three friends. And he's kind of stayed quiet for 31 chapters. He's watched it all happen. He's kind of been near, and he hasn't said anything. And so finally, after 31 chapters of silence, the gentleman's name is Elihu. Elihu cannot handle it anymore. And he says, I've got to say something. In chapter 32, he lays into the useless three friends and pretty much calls them that, useless. Everything that you have said is rubbish. Just because you're old does not mean it's actually wisdom. Why did you even talk? And then to Job, he turns to him in chapter 33. And he says, okay, Job, you have been talking. You have been complaining for quite a while now. And I want to I mention four of the things that you've said, and then I want to tell you why you're wrong, is essentially what he goes into. So Job has four claims that he makes. The first is in chapter 33, starts in verse uh, 9. Job chapter 33, verse 9. should be on the screen ahead of me. Job, Elihu says, you say, I am pure, Without transgression, I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Verse 13, why do you contend against him, him being God, saying, he will answer none of man's words? This is Job railing at God. This is kind of how he starts at the beginning. He says, I'm pure. You've declared me your enemy. I am not responsible for this. All the disaster that has befallen me, this isn't my fault. And then to make it worse, Job claims, God's not listening. God's not listening to me. He won't even answer me. Job wants to make it known that all that's happened is 100% God's fault, and he has no responsibility. That's where he has, his, this is where his argument starts. He hasn't even built up to there. That's where he starts, okay? Job's second claim, chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable though I am without transgression. I am right, and you're calling me a liar. There's no way that this can be fixed. And do you notice the real subtle, not-so-subtle dig that Job goes with? I'm right, and I'm not saying that God is wrong per se, but he is calling me a liar, and he's incorrect. 
So, Job, does that mean that you're calling God a liar? No, no, I didn't say that. But if the shoe fits, he is not budging. He is not taking responsibility with this. He is not moving an inch, and he says, this is not my fault, and I wish somebody would agree with me. He's pointing to God. He's looking to God. He's saying he's not moving. He's called me a liar. He makes another claim just a few verses later. Verse 9, for he has said, Job, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Following God hasn't earned me anything. I haven't gotten a payment worth my effort. Job is so angry. He's refusing responsibility. For any wrong that he's done at this point, he's like, I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience here, he is like a child who is trying to throw out the worst thing that he can to a parent to try to inflict a wound that is going to hurt the deepest. So he, he looks up to God and is like, delighting in you is useless. And, and you smell. I don't know. Like, he's just trying to come up with something that is going to hurt God. And he said, following you is useless. This is not good. It hasn't benefited me. Why have I even done it? And then he goes a step further. His fourth claim, chapter 35, verse 3. He's talking about what Job has said, that Job would ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? So now this is kind of like the other side of that coin. Delighting in you hasn't gotten me anything. Now the other side of the coin is, maybe I should have just gone and sinned my face off. Maybe then I would have actually had a better life. That's probably what I should have done. At this point, it's just kind of, it's Job's argument where he's just so, so angry. And he doesn't know what more he can say to God. All he knows is that he feels stuck and out of control. I feel that Job's argument at this point, it's devolved into a place I think I can sadly, I can recognize. Has anybody ever asked any questions like Job is asking of God at this point? While I'm not about to tell God that I'm in the right and he is wrong, I feel like I've said similar things. Have you ever just looked at the sky and muttered, why? Why me, God? Why me? Why have you let this happen? Why? Job's asking the exact same thing. We are asking the exact same thing as Job. We just haven't teased it out fully like Job has over the course of this, these chapters and this argument. Job is going so hard at God because he believes much of his life was in control. You see, it's, it's a funny deal. Job actually believed that his righteousness, the good things that were in his life, were because he did the right things. So if Job looked at his, his wife, his children, his house, his property, his cattle, those were all a result of his goodness. It wasn't that God gave him that. It was that he was good and he earned it. And thus, because he was good and he earned it, now he 
has lost control, he realizes or is being made to realize, I am not in control. This stuff is all gone. I thought I earned it. I thought I did my part. God, where are you in this? When we struggle with realizing that God is in control, we realize, sadly, how out of control we are. So what are some of the things that happen in our lives when we seek to have control always? When we try to keep control and act like God isn't the one who is great, but we are kind of the the masters of our lives. Well, worry and fear, this comes to mind. If I don't do fill in the blank, then this is all going to go downhill. I worry that some freak accident is around the corner, and so I worry constantly. I am in fear constantly because I don't know what's around the corner, and I need to try to control this. I am constantly, constantly worrying and fearing what is to come because something's going something's gonna to happen. What else? Well, since, since I think that my future is in my control, I must always keep doing fill in the blank because the moment I let up, then it's all going to hell in a handbasket. So we actually then live our lives, if we're trying to maintain this control, constantly working, constantly worrying, constantly trying to push forward and maintain this control at all costs because, again, if we let our foot off the gas, it's all going haywire. Well, if we are trying to maintain this control, what do we do? We actually put an absurd amount of rules or systems in place in our life. As long as I do this, then it's like in a math equation. If I do this, this will always be the result. If I always go to church on a Sunday in the rain, then God's going to like me more. I'm sorry. I, first of all, I'm really happy you are here, but you do not get extra kudos with God because you showed up in the midst of the storm. Um, he actually is very happy you're here, and he'll be happy you're here next week and the week after, so let's just, let's just keep it going. Let's keep it going. So um, what else? When we're trying to maintain control in our lives, what happens to us? We get frustrated really easily. We live our life almost in constant frustration because there are things that we keep having happen that remind us we are not in control. And we're like, come on, I did my part. I thought I did everything right. I had my systems right. I had my rules right. It was all moving forward. Ah, it didn't go right. Ah, and you just constantly walk around frustrated. You walk around angry. You walk around impatient. You do things, literally, you do everything And you expect everybody else to do things your way. And when people don't do them your way, well, then what are they doing? Don't you know I have this control? I have a way things are supposed to go. And when you don't do things my way, then I lose it on you. I am impatient with you. Why did you do it? Not my way. Don't you know I'm in control? Don't you know I'm great? Somebody with this mindset is overbearing. Again, you want to see things in your life all go a certain way, and so you keep pushing, and you keep pushing, and you try to make sure that everybody around you knows not only is it your way the way, but it's the only way. And so you're overbearing in people's lives. It also is, it has a step towards 
It shows itself, it's manifest even in our work situations because money is then a means of extending that control. So I want my life to be safe. I want it to look like this in this perfect little box. And so I need to have the perfect job and I need to have this income because when the money's coming in, I can make sure to keep away all the things that are going to say I'm out of control. As long as I have lots of money, I'm in control. It also shows up in parenting or in a marriage. Now, I've been, you, you might see, man, Andrew, these are really specific examples, I know, because this is the thing I struggle with. This is my bag, one that I wish I didn't carry. I struggle with this desire to be in control. A few years ago, um, Nick, if you could show the picture of the book, uh, I went through this book called You Can Change uh, by an author named Tim Chester. You know, nice little photo, so it shows you I have the book. Um, this is a fantastic book. I highly recommend everybody gets this. In this book, at the very start of the book, it's like, what is something in your life that you are doing that you know doesn't honor God? Find that specific thing and say, God, I want you to change me. I know you want to change me, so help me change. And so you actually use that. It's like a change project. You use that one thing that in your life that you want to see God show up and help change in you. And for me, I was noticing that I was constantly flying off the handle or being really short-tempered with my kids at the end of the day. And it was, again, it's like bedtime, and they just wouldn't listen to me. They wouldn't do things my way. I mean, they were only two and four. Don't they know that I know better than them? And so August and Emmeline at that time, um, I just, I was quick. I was short-tempered with them, and I wanted them always to do things my way. And I I was just this nice, loving, happy dad until bedtime, and then it was all out the window. And I realized it's because I had a control issue. I had a major control issue because my little children were not minding me, and they weren't doing exactly what I said, when I said, when I wanted it. And for some reason, I felt justified in getting mad at a two-year-old and a four-year-old. God use this book and some time in scripture to say, you have a control idol. You are worshiping yourself and you think you are great. You forget who's in charge. This is my issue. This is what I continue to struggle with. How does this show up in your day-to-day? How is this control idol made manifest as you go about Now, Job clearly had an issue with control, and he needed to be called out. Elihu actually then responds to each of Job's claims. So his first response came in uh, chapter 33, 12. I I love like short short one-sentence verses. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. It's a very simple, clear statement. You're not right, and God is greater than you. Jump over to uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? This is God's hand it's talking about. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. 
God is the one who literally has all of the waters of earth in the palm of his hand. The small center of his hand, he has everything that's on the earth. And then beyond that, when it says that he marked off the heavens with a span, that is actually a measurement of the width of his hand. So from the edge of all that exists on one side to the edge of all that exists on another, God's hand right here, edge, edge, all of human existence and everything that is. And so Job is crying out to him saying, you are not right and I am right. And Elihu says, time out, bud. Come on, you're not right. God is greater than you. His second and third reply, I'm going to group them together. Job 34, verse 12. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Job, stop telling God that he is judging incorrectly, that he has you all wrong, and that you are perfectly right. He is the judge. He is always just. He is impartial. He sees every single move, not just that you do, but that everybody does all over the earth. He knows everything. God is not wrong. So Job, all of your railing against God and telling him he's way off base, let me assure you, sir, he is not off base. Don't question him. Okay, now Elihu's fourth reply. Chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. I'm sorry, 6 and 7. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against God? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? So Elihu is calling out this idea that our actions and then the results of those actions are based out of our earning. So when you do good, you earn good things. When you do bad, you earn bad things. Certainly there are consequences as parents. We get that. When the kid touches the thing they shouldn't touch, yes, there's going to be a bad consequence. But Elihu's taking it at a different angle. This is not like a, a... a slot machine. You don't put it in and pull it and then, oh, you did good and good comes out. Or on the flip side, if you do bad, God is not inflicted with pain like you attacked him with a knife for every bad thing you did. God is not being cut down or made lower than himself because you are doing sin. In fact, when we sin, it only hurts us. And when we do more sin, it only hurts us more. So Elihu's saying, bud, you... This is not worth your time to run at God and say, well, maybe I should have just sinned more. If I had done that, then, then life would be better. Elihu knows that Job is angry and that his plea is empty. Frankly, I think that at this point, Job had been talking against his friends and gotten himself angrier and angrier and angrier that his thoughts weren't coming together. All that he was doing, he started off with like a nice thing, like, no, God's good, but I just don't understand why he's doing this to me. And then he gets to the point of, I don't care why God's doing this to me. He's wrong. I'm right. And I want to talk to him about it. (coughs) 
<coughs> Thank you. And in his anger, he almost talks himself into a corner. He has nowhere he can turn. And at this point, Job is at the perfect place where he has no other options. He throws his hands up. We are probably not going to have frequent, freak-like NBA athlete injuries fall into our lives. It's probably not going to happen to us. But we do have floods. Hashtag thanks, Harvey. We do have sickness. There are deaths in our families. There's diseases that we get. There are things that still come into our world and remind us of the effects of sin. And it brings us to this place where we have to look at God. We have to look at God. It's funny. Elihu comes at Job, and he starts by saying, you're wrong. I'm sorry, you're not right. God is greater than you. In fact, God actually does want to talk to you. He talks to you in your dreams, which is a lot of fun to actually see in Scripture. Like, you may have talked to some people who is like, God totally talked to me in my dream last night, and I don't get it, and it was weird. If you ever hear somebody say that, don't immediately dismiss them. There might be something to it. Because Elihu comes here and says, God speaks to us in our dreams to stop us from continuing down a bad road. And beyond that, God uses pain. He uses pain in our lives to stop us from going down a bad road. But even with dreams and pain, we are still in a place where we need an intercessor. We need a mediator. We need somebody to come and plead our case before our king. (coughs) John, can you grab my water that's on the table next to Nick and bring that up? Thank you. Um, We need a mediator. We need somebody to come and actually stand between us and God. We need somebody to represent our case Job chapter 33 is actually one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Elihu is talking. Thank you so much, sir. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Man, when you get coughing. Job has already made his case. Elihu has already said, God speaks out through our dreams. God speaks out through our pain. But even then, we need a mediator. I actually want you to close your eyes. I want to read this aloud. Understand this was written before Jesus. Verse 23, If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, and he says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. 
He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. You can open your eyes. Job was stuck. He had sin. He had circumstances that weren't going his way. He needed a mediator. He had somebody in Elihu to call him back to God's grace, to God's greatness, to his majesty. Actually, chapter 36 and chapter 37 are wholly about God's goodness, God's greatness, and his majesty. We just don't have enough time to literally read all of that today. But even though he had somebody to remind him, he needed a ransom for himself. He needed a mediator. He needed somebody to pull him out of the pit. And so do we. So do we. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus came down for us to be our mediator. As we're, as we're covering this story about Job and the things that are happening to him, I feel it's really easy for me at the beginning to be like, dude, Job, like, you're not great. God's great. Can't you see that? Can't you see that you're not in control? And the longer I read it, the more I see myself in Job. And the more I see that I also need that mediator. I need somebody to cry out for me. I need somebody to pay my ransom. And we have it in Jesus. Jesus came to earth, lived the perfect life, took our sins upon him on the cross, and then rose to life three days later from the dead to give us life, to set us free. Jesus conquered sin and death. We are not in control because Jesus is our mediator. Because he has been the one to pay our ransom, we don't need to keep fighting for control. The reality is we weren't in control from the beginning. We think we are. We keep trying to do it. And just like a person who keeps doing the same thing the same way and expects different results, definition of insanity, we keep trying to live our lives like we're in control. We keep trying to line our lives with the perfect systems, the perfect rules, the way of thinking, the way of moving, like we are in control. It didn't work before, and it won't work the longer we try. We've got to come to Jesus open-handed and say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. And, And here's the thing. If you have never crossed that line of faith, and you have never said to Jesus, I need you to step in in my heart and forgive me, he will. He'll come rushing in. We as the church will embrace you, if we haven't already, with open arms and say, we are so glad you're here. 
welcome to the family. But the reality is, a statement once doesn't just change everything. There is a daily commitment to trusting that Jesus is still in control and that you're not. Jesus promised us peace. See, here's the funny thing. We all are trying to achieve peace. We think we're in control, and so we're going to set things in our life so that we can have peace. All of our efforts and all of our doing is actually robbing us of peace. We've got to run to Jesus open-handed and say, Jesus, I need you, and he comes in, and he is our peace. He promises us peace. In the book of John, chapter 14, verse 27, he says that he is going to give us the Holy Spirit and he is going to leave us with his peace. He's going to leave us with his peace. That is a promise. We can lean on him. So what will our lives look like if we actually lean on him and we trust him to be our peace? We don't have to live in fear. Jesus has taken care of sin and death. What else is there to fear? God is great, so we don't have to be in control. What else is true? We don't have to worry about what's to come because God knows what's around the corner. If God knows what is around the corner, then we put our lives in him, we can trust him. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. We don't need to live our lives in a rigid, graceless system. We can actually be patient. We can let things just play out and not be overbearing. Jesus came to give grace, and our lives could all use more of his grace in the day today, if Jesus has come and given us his grace, God is great. So we don't have to be in control. And the last one, this hit me last night as I kept thinking through this and praying about it. We can confess our sin and we can own our responsibility both to God and to one another. We don't have to act like it's all together. Our control has only gotten us into more trouble. Jesus has already paid the ransom and has made us whole. There is nothing we've done that can make him love us any more or any less. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Trusting in the God who is great and leaning on his greatness is a daily choice. Why not today? Why not today? Would you pray with me? Jesus, all of us, all of us, need to trust you and your greatness more. Lord, as I've confessed to my brothers and sisters here, I struggle with not being in control. I want to have it. I want to keep it. And Lord, you're asking me, you are asking us to open our hands and allow to see that you are in control. 
that we can trust you. Lord, I ask that you open our hearts. Lord, of the things that came to mind as I was preaching and I was talking and you were speaking to hearts in this room, Lord, bring those things to mind that we all need to bring before you and confess. Things that are standing in the way of a solid relationship with you, of growth in our life and peace, rest in our day-to-day. Lord, we desperately need you. Give us the strength to confess what we need to confess. Give us the strength to turn to you. Lord, let today be the day that we say we choose to give up control. For those of us, Lord, who do have an idol of control that we worship, forgive us. Draw us near to you. Jesus, let us know you as Lord and as good. In your name we pray. Amen.